Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. It was going to be a beautiful day. The morning of July 24th, 1915 was cool and slightly damp. But this was a comfort to the thousands of people dressed in their stuffy Sunday best as they crowded along the Illinois docks that morning, anxiously waiting to take a boat ride. There were mostly workers and their families from the Western Electric Company's Hawthorne Works in Cicero. The vast majority of the men were Czech immigrants, and they worked long, grueling hours, six days a week. The annual company picnic was considered a major event and practically the only day off the men got throughout the year. The company's plan was to charter a boat to ferry the employees and their families to Washington Park in Michigan City, Indiana, where they would get to spend the day riding the roller coaster and the merry-go-round, or perhaps cutting a rug on the dancing pavilion, or even taking a cool dip in the lake. The previous year's company picnic had set an all-time record with more than 6,000 people in attendance, and this year's event topped even that with more than 7,000 tickets sold. With so many people going, the company was forced to charter an additional boat, the SS Eastland. At 6.30 that morning, passengers began boarding the Eastland in preparation for the 7.30 sailing. It was a festive atmosphere. The men looked dashing in their suits and straw boaters. The ladies were all done up in fancy dresses and wide-brimmed hats. And they tried to keep their young children close by their sides among the crush of people. On board, a band played ragtime music. And as the Eastland's upper deck filled, it became difficult to really dance with all the people standing shoulder to shoulder. But you could still sway in place and try your best to shuffle your feet around a bit. By 7.15, the ship had filled up with more than 2,500 passengers. Many of them noticed how the decks seemed to sway beneath their feet. But few paid it any mind, even as the boat began to list back and forth, from port to starboard, up against the docks. It was the Titanic's fault. At least that's what some people claimed in the aftermath of the disaster that was about to occur. After the RMS Titanic went down in the Atlantic just three years earlier, a new federal rule was enacted mandating that every passenger vessel must contain enough lifeboats and flotation devices for every passenger. All of which sounded like a good idea, but in the case of the SS Eastland, that meant adding a considerable amount of extra weight on the upper decks, weight that the ship, which had originally been built in 1902 for hauling fruit, was not designed to carry. Back while the bill was still being debated, the general manager of the Detroit and Cleveland Navigation Company had tried to warn Congress that many of the vessels that sailed the Great Lakes, with their shallow drafts, 
weren't designed to accommodate all that extra weight. But few legislators listened. This was potentially a major issue, especially for the Eastland. Even early on before the new safety regulations were enacted, the Eastland had a reputation as being top-heavy. In 1903, overcrowding had caused the ship to nearly capsize. Two years later, it nearly happened again. By 7.15 a.m. on July 24, 1915, all that extra weight from the safety equipment and the more than 2,500 passengers on board caused the ship to list perilously from side to side. Although many passengers thought it was nothing more than a big joke at first, the crew knew exactly what was happening and began to panic. Witnesses on the docks began to shout in alarm as the ship began to tip further and further over to one side. At 7.23, water began to rush in through the portholes on the lower decks and into the open gangways, and from there, into the engine room. The crew scrambled to climb out of there when they realized what was about to happen. At 7.28 a.m., the Eastland listed to a 45-degree angle. A piano on the promenade deck slid across the floor and crushed two women to death. Then a refrigerator slid to port, crushing even more people beneath it. People screamed as the floor lurched beneath their feet, and everyone inside the lower cabins toppled together in a massive heap. Up on the top deck, the forces of physics did their work and people began flying through the air and into the water. By 7.30 a.m., the ship had fallen completely on its side and was now lying half-submerged in the muddy waters along the Chicago River. Arlen Babcock, a reporter for the Chicago Herald, described the scene as such. When the boat toppled on its side, those on the upper deck were hurled off like so many ants being brushed from a table. In an instant, the surface of the river was black with struggling, crying, frightened, drowning humanity. We infants floated about like corks. The screams could be heard for miles around. More than 10,000 horrified onlookers were gathered along the docks that day. Some people began throwing crates into the water for people to grab onto. Others began to jump off the dock trying to save the flailing people in the water below. This included one man who reportedly had been contemplating suicide before abruptly changing his mind and decided instead to jump in and save some people. Because the Eastland capsized so quickly, the captain didn't have time to give orders to abandon ship, nor had any life jackets been handed out. All those massive gowns the women wore became dead weight in the water. Many of them sunk like stones right to the bottom. Many other passengers remained trapped below decks as muddy water filled the cabins, drowning them in a murky grave. In the end, 844 people died in the SS Eastland disaster, including 286 teenagers, young children, and infants. More than 70% of the people who died that day were under the age of 25. Although today everyone knows the story of the RMS Titanic, the tale of the SS Eastland is one of those maritime disasters that's been almost forgotten to history. Some historians have chalked this up to the fact that most of the people who died that day were just poor working-class folks, unlike the many wealthy captains of industry like John Jacob Astor, who went down with the Titanic. This wouldn't be the last time throughout history when a major shipboard tragedy would occur that hardly anyone remembers either. In 1934, a cruise ship named the Morrow Castle would encounter a peculiar string of bad luck. 
Leading up to the death of the captain one fateful night, followed by a devastating fire breaking out on board that would claim the lives of more than 130 people. What's even more shocking about the incident is that very likely, none of it was an accident. I'm Nate Hale, and my heart will go on and on. And this is The Conspirators. The captain was certain someone was trying to kill him. The suspicion had creeped up on him over time. Strange things had been happening on his ship as of late, much of it seemingly directed toward him. Robert Wilmot had been the captain of the Morrow Castle for the four years it had been in operation. He was a seasoned sailor and a company man through and through. The cruise liner was the flagship of the ward line, and she had seen her maiden voyage on August 23, 1930. Since then, Captain Wilmot had proven incredibly popular with both the company and the passengers, making him a key part of the ship's success. That and all the booze. The Morrow Castle's typical route was shuttling between New York and Havana, Cuba. This being the Prohibition era, the Morrow Castle and her sister ship, the Orient, effectively functioned as floating speakeasies, being able to serve alcohol to passengers once they reached international waters. For a round-trip cost starting at $65, about $1,200 in today's money, passengers could eat, drink, and be merry during the two and a half days it took to get to Cuba, two days ashore on the island paradise, then two days to return to the Big Apple. For those that could afford it, the cruise was a major respite from the grim reality of life during the Great Depression. Despite how popular Captain Wilmot proved to be with most people, Over the summer of 1934, he became convinced someone had it in for him. Sinister events kept occurring over that summer. On July 29th, Captain Wilmot fell seriously ill, and by the time he recovered, he began to strongly suspect he'd been poisoned. On August 4th, the crew nearly went on strike and almost wrecked both the ship's tight schedule and Captain Wilmot's own unblemished record with the company. Then on August 27th, a mysterious fire broke out in the hold that contained high explosives. You see, there was something else about the Morrow Castle that few people outside the crew, some corporate executives, and a few members of the U.S. government knew. For quite some time, the ship had been ferrying loads of weapons and high explosives to Cuba in order to help the U.S.-friendly government in power try to stave off the burgeoning communist revolution going on in the island paradise. Captain Wilmot privately thanked God that the fire on August 27th hadn't spread far enough to set off the load of explosives. That would have been a complete disaster. By the time September of 1934 rolled around, all these events began to add up in the captain's mind that he must have a saboteur aboard. But who? And why? That he wasn't sure of yet. On September 5th, after the ship docked in Havana, the captain received a disturbing warning from the Port of Havana chief of police, who told him he suspected a communist agent might have gotten aboard. Although Captain Wilmot had his suspicions who the communist rat could be, he was never able to prove it, because by September 7th, the captain was dead. 
It was during the return voyage to New York that word began to spread among the passengers that Captain Wilmot had died suddenly of a heart attack. At least that was the story being told by the crew. The truth was something a little more difficult to determine. The morning of September 7th showed signs of a developing nor'easter right in the ship's path on its return voyage to New York. It was something Captain Wilmot made a mental note to steer clear of. Throughout the day, the wind built and the seas churned. Increasing rain kept most passengers confined to the interior cabins. That evening, Captain Wilmot had his dinner sent to his cabin. Not long after, he began to complain of stomach pain. And soon after that, he was dead. But although no official autopsy would ever be performed on Captain Wilmot, most historians today strongly suspect the man had been poisoned. There was precedent for this suspicion as well. On July 29th of that year, Captain Wilmot had developed severe stomach cramps, diarrhea, and a temporary disturbance of vision following a meal. Back then, the ship's surgeon diagnosed it as simple food poisoning. But knowing what we know now, it seems more likely to have been poisoning of a more deliberate type. The line of succession put Chief Officer William Worms in charge, but... As it turns out, Worms was wholly unqualified for the job, and in light of what would happen next, may have inadvertently made the disaster even worse. Now, it would be unfair to lay all of the blame for the catastrophe following the captain's death on the feet of Chief Officer Worms. Considering all the other problems on board the Morrow Castle, there was plenty of blame to go around, and a lot of that could be directly attributed to Captain Wilmot himself. Considering the Morrow Castle was only four years old when the fire broke out, you would expect it to have the latest in life-saving equipment, which it did. But much of that equipment was never used, and none of the crew had any real idea what to do in the event of a problem on board. All of that could be directly attributed to orders given by Captain Wilmot himself. As I mentioned previously, Captain Wilmot was a company man through and through. Back in May of 1934, during a fire drill, a female passenger slipped on a wet deck from a leaking joint connection between a fire hose and a hydrant and fractured her ankle. Afterwards, the woman sued the ward line and settled out of court for what was then the princely sum of $25,000. Captain Wilmot caught an earful from the corporate offices after that about how much money his ship had cost them. When the captain returned to his ship later on, he ordered his crew to cap all the fire hydrants and stow away the fire hoses. This meant that were a fire to ever break out in the ship, the only thing they had to fight the blaze with were a few dozen chemical fire extinguishers. Perhaps even worse, during the Morrow Castle's final cruise, Captain Wilmot also ordered that the ship's state-of-the-art fire detection system be turned off. The Morrow Castle was equipped with the most sophisticated early warning system then available. It was composed of 27 lines of piping leading to an interior detector cabinet that would immediately set off an alarm should a fire ever break out. But when the captain ordered the system be shut off, that meant the only way anyone would even know there was a fire on board would it be to follow their noses. None of which mattered in any case because Captain Wilmot was also notoriously lax in ordering any sort of safety drills or training for his crew. Everybody-
everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. In August, just a month before the fire broke out in the Morrow Castle, a government-mandated fire drill did occur but by most accounts, this was little more than a charade. Captain Wilmot refused to allow any water to be used during the drill for fear another passenger might slip and fall. He ordered the men to make some half-hearted runs back and forth across the deck carrying a hose, and somehow this all managed to pass inspection with the government regulators. After the drill was done, Captain Wilmot ordered his men to stow the fire hoses back in the storeroom once more. Instead of regular fire or safety drills, Captain Wilmot insisted upon keeping up appearances aboard his ship. One of the things he had his crew do regularly was to paint the deck over and over and over again, using, of all things, highly flammable oil-based paint. The ship's watchman, Arthur Pender, was one of the few crewmen who saw the potential for trouble. He had been sailing on various ships for nearly 16 years, and he had never seen such a wanton disregard for safety as he had on the Morrow Castle. Everything was about watching out for the company's bottom line as he saw it. During the four months he had been employed on the Morrow Castle, he compiled a lengthy dossier of what he saw as potential disasters. He discovered that the fire doors were not equipped with sirens or bells, which was standard on most other first-class passenger vessels. In any case, the crew had no real training on what to do in the event of an actual fire anyway. None of them had ever been trained in the proper use of fire extinguishers, hoses, or other equipment. Many air ducts didn't function, and in fact had been painted over. So too were the ladders and chains attached to many of the lifeboats. They had been painted over so many times they were almost certainly useless if anyone needed to lower them in a hurry. Pender was especially alarmed when he learned that the ship's Lyle gun, a device that used gunpowder to fire an emergency safety line to shore, had been moved again and again around the ship. No one seemed to know where to store the thing. It would eventually end up being stored in a space behind the ceiling of the first-class writing room. This meant that were the powder to ever catch fire, the only thing between the explosion and the passengers was a thin sheet of plasterboard. The final night of the Morrow Castle's cruise was typically set to include one final party before they docked in New York. But the death of the captain had quashed that, and the ship remained mostly quiet throughout the evening. At around 2.50 a.m. on September 8th, while the ship was sailing about 8 nautical miles off Long Beach Island, a fire was detected in a storage locker behind the first-class writing room, right around the same area as the Lyle gun with all its gunpowder. The fire spread quickly, 
Within 30 minutes, the entire ship would be engulfed in flames. Despite knowing of the fire spreading throughout the ship, Captain Worms made the terrible decision to continue steering the vessel directly into the path of the oncoming nor'easter, instead of turning toward shore. The gale force winds only served to fuel the flames further, and blew them from bow to stern. The oil-based paint the deck was painted with fought rapidly. The entire ship was one big tinderbox, with a lot of wood used in construction, as well as loads of heavily varnished furniture throughout the cabins. Under Admiralty law, in the event of an emergency, the captain must order an SOS be sent immediately. But the radio operator, George Rogers, later claimed he didn't receive word to send an SOS from acting Captain Worms for nearly a half hour. Worms would later contradict this claim by swearing he had ordered the distress call be sent immediately. Despite the ship having a dozen lifeboats with a total capacity of 408 people, only half of the lifeboats were ever deployed, and of those, most of them went into the water only partially full. Only 85 people managed to get away safely on the lifeboats. The vast majority of the people who managed to clamber aboard them were panicked crewmen. As I mentioned, most of the crewmen were woefully inexperienced with safety procedures. The ward line was notorious for paying the lowest wages among all cruise lines. In fact, many of the crewmen received no pay at all, and instead worked for food and shelter aboard the Morrow Castle. When the lifeboats began coming ashore, many of the ashamed crewmen, knowing they had left the passengers behind to die, began tearing off their ward line name tags but they were unable to hide their white uniforms, and it's easy to pick them out in newspaper photographs. Back on the ship, the passengers were left to fend for themselves. Captain Wilmot never wanted to inconvenience the passengers, so they had never received any instruction on how to don life vests, or even where to gather at muster stations to board the lifeboats. When people began to scramble to figure out how to put the life vests on, many of them put them on wrong, and when they jumped into the water, things went badly. Many vests came off or smashed them in the face, knocking them unconscious and leaving them face down in the ocean. In some cases, the force of the vest being shoved upwards by the fall even snapped their necks. One story tells of an 18-year-old Olympic swimmer named Franz de Beche, who heroically kept giving life vests away to single women, telling them he could swim better than any of them. But acting Captain Worms had kept the ship moving ahead, and when Debesh finally jumped into the water, he got sucked into the ship's still-spinning propellers and was never seen again. The power went out on the ship shortly after the SOS signal was sent. The fire soon burned its way through the ship's electrical lines, leaving the passengers to struggle to find their way through the dark and the thick black smoke. Although officially the Morrow Castle had a capacity to carry 489 passengers, it's estimated that it may have been carrying as many as 620 people on that voyage. This would have included as many as 100 undocumented refugee children. At the time, violence was rampant in the streets of Cuba. Many Cuban parents paid the crewmen on board to smuggle their children on board back to the United States. Many children's bodies were later found burned to death after they had been abandoned in unoccupied rooms aboard the ship, where no one ever knew where to look for them. One witness later told of trying to hand a life vest to a badly burned little boy, 
but he was unable to keep it on because of the way his skin sloughed off him. Many rescuers were slow to respond to the disaster occurring just a few miles from shore. At first, the Coast Guard refused to send rescue vessels or search planes because of the storm and heavy churning seas. Several captains of small fishing vessels along the Jersey Shore took it upon themselves to risk their lives by sailing into the storm searching for survivors. The burning remains of the Morrow Castle later came to a halt when it became beached in the shallow water near the Asbury Park boardwalk. By morning, dozens of bodies began washing up along the shore. A makeshift morgue was set up. So many people stormed the area looking for their missing loved ones, they actually had to start a number-taking system in order for people to come through and view the corpses. By the time the bodies were counted, 86 passengers and 49 crewmen were dead. It's horrifying to think, but the charred remains of the Morrow Castle became big business for the Asbury Park area. Tourism was already way down throughout the area because of the Great Depression. And the boardwalk was mostly a ghost town that time of year because it was the off-season. But for months, the Morrow Castle became the number one tourist destination in the area. Hundreds of thousands of people flocked to the area to see the blackened remains of the ship. During the first few days after the ship crashed, traffic jams into the city stretched for miles. There was some discussion with the city council to make the Morrow Castle a permanent attraction. But further problems arose because the ship's hull carried a huge supply of untreated animal hides meant for making clothing and upholstery. Those hides continued to rot inside the ship, and the stench grew so great that wealthy homeowners along the shore began to complain. The Morrow Castle's remains were finally hauled away six months later. Officially, we don't know the actual cause of the Morrow Castle fire, nor of Captain Wilmot's untimely death mere hours before the fire broke out. Although the captain's remains were supposed to be sent to New York to test for poison, the body never made it there. Somehow the body was suspiciously lost in transit. But even though the cause of the disaster officially remains a mystery, plenty of investigators over the years have studied the evidence and all seem to end up pointing at the same individual as being the source of all the ship's troubles. The ship's radio operator, George Rogers. Following the disaster at sea, Acting Captain Warms, Chief Engineer Egan Abbott, and Ward Line Vice President Henry Cabot were all indicted on various charges related to the incident, including willful negligence. They would all be convicted and sent to jail. However, an appeals court would later overturn Warms and Abbott's convictions. After deciding that much of the blame should actually go to the deceased Captain Wilmot, One person who was hailed as a hero during the official inquiry was radio operator George Rogers. He managed to capitalize on his newfound fame by taking his act to vaudeville and began telling his story to packed audiences about all the people he managed to save. But if anyone had bothered to look into George Rogers' past, they might have realized he was anything but a hero. It's amazing that he was even hired by the ward line in the first place. Nobody liked him. In fact, many fellow crew members outright despised the man. He had a long history of petty theft and arson even before he came to work on the Morrow Castle. There are some reports that claim he was going to be fired upon his return to New York, which point to a possible motive why he may have started the fire and poisoned the captain. 
Rogers began exhibiting psychotic behavior in adolescence and was once caught attempting to sodomize a younger boy. He had a very brief stint in the Navy before being discharged officially for poor eyesight. He got married and ended up poisoning his wife's dog following an argument. Around 1929, he became fascinated with articles about how to construct an incendiary device. He began collecting scientific books and magazines about chemistry and bomb making. He once proudly figured out how to recreate the bomb used in the infamous Black Tom explosion in World War I that destroyed millions of dollars worth of American munitions. In March 1929, Rogers was the main suspect in a suspected arson fire at the wireless Egbert company he had worked in. But police were never able to produce enough evidence to arrest him. Once the publicity died down around him and his Broadway show came to a close, Rogers opened his own radio shop in New Jersey. But the business struggled and would mysteriously burn to the ground one evening. Rogers then got a job as a radio assistant with the Bayonne, New Jersey Police Department working underneath Lieutenant Vincent Doyle. Both Doyle and Rogers had some things in common, in that both men liked to tinker with electrical equipment. According to Lieutenant Doyle, he got to chatting with Rogers one day about the Morrow Castle fire, when the man began spinning an elaborate story for him about how he suspected it had been set. Rogers told him he thought the fire might have been done by an individual who had rigged a special incendiary device disguised as a pen. The pen, Rogers said, would have to contain two compartments, one for acid and another with a chemical explosive separated by a copper plate. Once the acid burned through the copper plate, an explosion would occur. Naturally, after that, Lieutenant Doyle began to look at Rogers in a different light. Not long after Rogers told him about his startling theory, Lieutenant Doyle received a mysterious package at the police station. Inside, he found a broken aquarium heater. This wasn't uncommon because people were always bringing in broken gizmos for Rogers and Doyle to fix. But when Lieutenant Doyle plugged the aquarium heater in to see what was wrong with it, the device exploded. It turns out someone had packed it with TNT. Although Doyle was severely injured, he still managed to survive the blast. From there, it wasn't difficult for police to find and arrest a suspect. Rogers was sentenced to 12 to 20 years in prison, but in 1942 he received an early release to serve in World War II. But even though they let him out, the Navy rejected his application, and suddenly Rogers found himself back on the streets a free man. After that, he settled back into Bayonne and tried to market his skills as a handyman. In 1952, Rogers' neighbor, William Hummel, loaned him $7,500, but Hummel began pressuring Rogers to repay the money. Then on July 1st, 1953, Hummel and his daughter Edith were both found beaten to death with a sledgehammer. Police immediately arrested George Rogers after finding him wearing pants still stained with William Hummel's blood. Rogers was found guilty of two counts of murder and sentenced him to life imprisonment. He died four years later of a brain hemorrhage. Although much of the circumstantial evidence points to George Rogers being the cause of the fire on board the Morrow Castle, other researchers have tried to point the finger of blame on everything from faulty wiring to the spontaneous combustion of chemically treated blankets in the storage locker. 
William McPhee, a well-known writer of sea stories, suggested the fire might have been caused by an overheating furnace left unattended by the inexperienced crew. Some people have even suggested the true cause was an unnamed Cuban saboteur seeking revenge for the United States shipping arms to fight the revolution. Personally, I hold fast to Occam's razor in this case. Here you have a convicted murderer with a history of both poisoning and arson on board the ship. Then the captain dies of an apparent poisoning. Then a fire mysteriously breaks out. It seems fairly obvious to me that George Rogers was the culprit. Some historians who have looked into the cases have even suggested that members of the U.S. government knew full well that George Rogers was to blame, but actively aided in a cover-up in order to hide evidence of their illicit gun running. If there is any silver lining to the Morrow Castle fire, it's that it served to only further improve safety procedures aboard sailing vessels in the years that followed. On September 8, 2009, the 75th anniversary of the disaster, the first and only memorial to the victims, rescuers, and survivors of the Morrow Castle, was dedicated on the west side of the Asbury Park Convention Hall. The use of wood and other flammable materials was greatly curtailed in ships that were constructed in the years that followed the fire. Proper safety training procedures became mandatory for crew members and passengers from then on. Many of the victims of the Morrow Castle Fire are buried in Mount Prospect Cemetery in Neptune, New Jersey, not far from shore. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks, as always, for listening. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank. Thank you to Ken for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder that patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in helping support the show, I'll put a link to Patreon in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is by subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Every one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical rankings and helps spread the word even further about us. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. You have plenty of other options as well. You can find us on Stitcher, Google Play, and many of your other favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. If you want to drop us a line and let us know how we're doing, you can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, or our Facebook page. You can even send us an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time.